Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follier Different. Podcast Magazine calls us the best business podcast. And some podcast reviewers call us overrated and say that I, quote, swear needlessly. You know, I've never really thought that there was any swearing that was needless, but that's just me. Whatever you call us, we feature real dialogues, not overly edited and produced interviews. And you will never hear an ad read in the middle of our guest conversations. Only uninterrupted, unedited, authentic dialogue. And, you know, I'll just say one other thing about that. We're at a time in the United States particularly, where it seems like many of us have lost the ability to dialogue with each other. And I never thought that uh, championing real dialogue, real conversation was going to be a thing, but it is. And, um, you know, there used to be a word called conversationalist, that people wanted to be a good conversationalist. Uh, People wanted to be good listeners. And uh, we live at a time with a lot of yelling. And so um, I think the power of a real, authentic dialogue has always moved humanity forward. And um, I hope that uh, we can spark more of that, particularly in the United States. All right. With all that said, fantastic episode this episode. Let's talk food. You know, on one level, food is about survival, sustenance, and safety, and so forth. And it is also a centering point for life, for conversation, for culture, and yes, expressing love. If you grew up in the kind of family that I grew up in, if you liked mom or grandma's food, um, you were telling them that you loved them. Well, today we have an extraordinary guest. She is a lawyer turned author and TikTok infotainer, uh, as well as social media rock star. Her name is Joanne Molinaro, and she's developed a massive following by fusing Korean cooking, veganism with life lessons and storytelling into kind of a legendary stew, if you will, that her fans can't get enough of. And she's one of the first in the digital world to take intimate life lessons and cooking lessons and combine them in the way that many families used to, and some families still do, have uh, personal and life conversations together in the kitchen as they cook and eat and clean up. She shares things that many people uh, normally would share at their homes, and uh, she's figured out how to do that and take it to the world. Her food blog, The Vegan Korean, uh, is one of the top in the world in terms of food blogs. Her channels on social media and TikTok have literally millions of followers. And she's got a brand new book out called, you guessed it, The Korean Vegan. Today, we have a fun, powerful, and personal conversation about everything from how to cook Korean omelets and braised tofu to her family roots, escaping the terror of war in North Korea. We also dig into Asian hate and why she is her own favorite chef. Uh, What happens in the world, how what happens in the world affects Joanne so deeply. And I think you'll love her advice on following your different. She also tells us how to bake legendary focaccia bread. (laughs) And I got to tell you, we had a shit ton of fun in this conversation And candidly, I have been waiting like a kid waits for uh, Halloween or Christmas or their birthday to share this dialogue with Joanne with you. 
My friends at NetSuite are the number one cloud ERP system, and they are the platform you need to build a legendary business. Check out NetSuite.com slash different today. And my friends at Malibu Milk are the world's first organic whole plant flax milk. And um, if you like, um, uh, you know, non-dairy milks and you haven't tried Malibu milk yet, I think you're going to be surprised. Malibu milk's flax milk is stunning. I have it every day and I love it. And I also want to remind you to go to Lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com and subscribe to Category Pirates. It's kind of like the Harvard Business Review if it was written for and by pirates. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Joanne, it sure is great to meet you. I am so excited to be here. A little nervous, uh, given what's been written about you, but I'm also very excited. What would make you nervous? Oh, I don't know. The (laughs) off-putting characterization. And I really enjoy the no BS style, but a lot of times it's not directed exactly at me. So I'm nervous, but in a very excited way. Well, please don't be nervous and... uh... I'm I'm very excited to have you here. Uh, the minute I found out about you and sort of dug into who you are um, and, and take this the way I mean it, I kind of started to fall in love with you. And I thought, wow, this gal oh. is incredible. And, oh, um, and so I'm very excited you're here and I'm very excited. This is your first book, is it not? It is. It's my first book. And uh, as an author yourself, I'm sure you can understand all of the anxiety wrapped up into it. I feel like I'm giving birth to a child. (laughs) I know this feeling well. I have had the exact same feeling uh, with both my books. Uh, It didn't really get much better for the second one. And I really was terrified with the launch of both my podcasts. I mean, absolutely terrified. So um, is there anything specific that you're worried about? You know, there are a couple of things. I think, uh, you know, it's it's a book with a lot of my writing and it's a book with a lot of my recipes. So I'm so terrified that someone's going to try a recipe and it's going to be, this is horrible. I couldn't figure it out at all. Or all of these people who sort of know me for my words and my writing are going to discover, eh, she's actually not that good of a writer after all. <laughs> Those are the two <laughs> things that I'm really afraid of. What if the world finds out I suck? Exactly. It's, it's all a big sham. I <laughs> just put on a very good facade for the past two decades. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I don't think that's going to be your problem at all. No, oh, I appreciate that. And so lots to talk about with you. I've been dying to meet you. Um, maybe we could start here. Tell me about your relationship with food. Oh, that's a really good question. Let's start with the nice answer and then we'll get into the tougher answer. I think like many people, I love food. I love eating. I love trying new foods. I love cooking food now, Um, but mostly I just love eating food. And I think that's why I like cooking. I realized pretty quickly that I like eating my own food best. Uh, Not because, you know, I'm, you know, very persnickety about what goes into my food, although that's part of it, but mostly because I think my food tastes the best because I know what I like and I know how to make my food the way that I like. 
uh, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I love eating grandma's food. I love eating my mom's food. And sure, I love eating my mom's food too. But a lot of times I'm like, I know I can make this better for me, you know, at home. <laughs> so, you know, food makes me feel happy. I like eating it. It puts a smile on my face. It's something that I look forward to. I think also for me, and I think this is probably true for a lot of um, children of immigrants or immigrants themselves, food also provides me with an immense amount of safety because it's one of the direct connections that I have to my grandma. Um, my grandparents, my grandmothers, they made me food for the first half of you know my childhood. And as a result, it's kind of the few things I have left that remind me of them and that make me feel loved and cared for in that very special way when you're a little girl or a little boy or, you know, when you're a child. So that's certainly something that I associate with food. Unfortunately, you know, over the past, my entire life, I've also had a very fraught relationship with food. I was told very, very young that part of my value was tied to how I look and how thin I was. And I was told for most of my life that I'm not thin enough. And unfortunately, food consumption contributes to your size. And as a result of that, however much I love eating food and however much I love cooking food, and in some cases, how much safety it provides me, on the other hand, it also creates a great deal of anxiety and danger. Um, so it's sort of that very strange juxtaposition where, you know, a bowl of kimchi jjigae makes me feel so safe, but a bowl of kimchi jjigae also equals calories, which makes me feel unsafe. Hmm. Interesting. And, and that dichotomy, as I dug into your work, there seems to be a dichotomy thread that, that sort of runs through your life. And uh, you're very public about sort of how your perspective has changed as you've grown older, as you've achieved uh, business success, now as you've achieved success as a creator and so forth. And so I'm curious, has your relationship uh, with food, particularly since you've become this food superstar, has that changed your relationship with food, Joanne? In some ways it has. I think that it's required me to be a little bit more fastidious about guarding against um, obsessing with food, which is something that I did sort of impulsively. Like I didn't control it. It was just an instinct that had developed over years of, you know, feeling afraid of food and feeling um, like I had to be so careful about what I was eating and how I was eating. And now that I'm front facing about my relationship with food and as a food creator, I feel very responsible about not just sending the correct message out into the world, but by living to, you know, in accordance with that message. I can't on the one hand tell people, hey, stop counting calories while I myself am counting calories. Like that doesn't make sense. I think the other facet to that, of course, is when I went vegan, that added a, an intentionality to my food consumption that had previously only been comprised of calorie counting. And now it's like, well, no, it's not just about, you know, satisfying your, you know, desire to eat something or, you know, counting calories. There's so much more that goes into your diet and so much more intention that you can put into it. And that kind of has now expanded to include 
again, the messaging that I'm providing through the Korean Vegan, which is about food should be about safety and not unsafety, which is what it on some some levels means to me still and something that I struggle with. Interesting. So food equals safety. Um, You've said that a couple times. And uh, you talk, of course, very openly about um, your life and about your family history. And one of the, I think one of the reasons for your success is you are a new category. Uh, Heretofore, we haven't really had somebody who was combining uh, recipes, cooking, another niche down vegan, another niche down vegan vegetarian or vegan cooking, and then another niche down. And while I do it, let me tell you about my grandmother's experience as a child and what that meant to her and what that meant to us. And you swizzle all this together and you're this new category of, of, of creator. Yeah. I think that it wasn't completely intentional, like, oh, I'm going to be the new category of storyteller or food blogger. I am also not going to lie and say that that wasn't something that entered into the equation when I was thinking about how do I create content that's going to resonate with a lot of people. And for me, you know, maybe because of my background, you know, I did go to the University of Chicago and, you know, all them like economics is sort of embedded into a lot of what I do, right? Which is supply demand. Always I'm thinking about supply demand and I'm thinking, well, there is an abundance of supply when it comes to recipes and food bloggers and things like that. And I don't know that the demand right now exceeds that supply. So what can I supply that would be in demand that hasn't already been created in excess. And so part of that was just kind of looking at my own skill set and asking myself, is there something that I do particularly well that can either fill a hole that already exists or create a hole and then fill that hole, right? And so for me, I was like, well, I know I can write. I've been writing since I was, geez, since I was a little girl. And I know I can create Korean vegan food. And why not just combine all of that into something that is sort of a natural experience? And I think some of that was a result of me, again, associating food with my family, like my grandparents, my grandmothers in in particular, just because for them, you know, their insecurity around food was always about lack of food, right? Because they grew up in poverty, they grew up in war. And so for them, food absolutely equals safety because it's the only fundamental thing that you basically need in order to be alive, right? And for me, it was trying to really embrace that notion that my grandmothers imparted to me whenever they gave me food. And kind of, I think, like, just instinctively knowing that there are people out there who need that sort of love, who need that sort of reassurance. And was your family experience growing up similar to mine in that uh, as a kid, when you ate the food, uh, the food was a gift of love, and the eating and enjoying of the food was an acknowledgement and a, a gratitude for that love, and almost... There's almost like if you don't have seconds, maybe you don't love me enough or something. 
I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there's this, there's this safety thing. And then there's this caring thing. And then there's the love that goes into the food and the love that the maker of the food, my grandmothers were exactly the same way as you describe yours in this sense. They wanted to see you enjoy the shit out of that food. Absolutely. I mean, the subtext is completely there. It is really like that. It's if the more noise you make (laughs) in enjoying the food, the more slurping sounds, the more, you know, clattering, uh, all of that stuff is a huge, um, it's a different dialect. Uh, it's a, it's a dialect of love. And I think that many, again, immigrant families, whether it's because of the inherent language barrier or because, you know, at least in Asian culture, open signs of affection are discouraged. So food becomes a language that we sort of instinctively learn how to speak as we grow up. Just like I learned how to speak Korean or English, food was itself a language. And you're absolutely right. When my grandmothers served me a bowl of rice, it was saying, I love you, even though I never heard those words out of my grandmother's lips in any language, uh, or at least any other spoken language. And me eating it as loudly as I could or as, you know, aggressively as I could was telling them. Them. Yes, I love you too. Thank you. It's so cool that you say that. I remember a discussion years ago. I've I've done a lot of what today we call personal growth or personal development training. I started at a pretty young age. I had some Samsonites I needed to uh, unpack. Anyway, mm-hmm. I remember um, once being in, in a program and this person's upset in life was um, that their parents had never said, I love you to them. And this was a, a huge thing they were carrying around in their luggage. And I remember the program leader at the time saying, can I ask you a question? This person says, of course. Did you know your parents loved you? And she said, yes. She said, so you didn't like the way they told you, but they told you, right? They made it clear, right? And so that rice was the equivalent of I love you? Exactly. Because if you think about it, rice in Korean culture was literally the symbol of surviving. When my grandparents were, you know, fleeing North Korea, um, you know, with wartime, a kernel of rice would have meant, you know, being alive or dead. You know what I mean? So when they're handing me a bowl of rice, it's everything, all that struggle and all that survival instinct like goes into every kernel and they're giving that to me. There can be no more loving act from my grandmother to me. And again, like you said, there has to be some exchange, some acknowledgement of that. Um, like saying, yes, I, I know what you're giving me now. Sadly, you know, being raised in America, being raised in a country of abundance and not really understanding the perspective that my grandmas were coming from, I couldn't fully appreciate that. There's no way for me to fully appreciate at the age of five, six, seven, ten, right? Even through college. And it wasn't until, you know, the past five years when I became far more familiar with my family history and my grandparents' story that now you know, in retrospect, and sadly, now that they've passed, I can really understand how much love went into everything that they served to me on our dinner table. Yeah, it is an amazing thing. And and, and I feel that today in, in my life. Today, when family members cook for me, uh, one of my best friends, Julia Child, was an adopted mm-hmm. aunt of his. 
And so he grew up with her, like he called her Aunt Julia. And so, and How he's amazing. turned into amazing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he has, he has so many stories. Actually, I should probably have him on to just talk about her. Yes, I think you should. I would listen to that. You know, she was in the CIA. <laughs> yeah, I know, which is so cool because her personality is so not what you think of CIA. It's the stories he has are incredible. But regardless, um, my buddy, my buddy Big Ben is an incredible, uh, incredible cook. And uh, my wife, Carrie, is from an Italian family. And they are like a lot, but not all, uh, very, very serious about their food. I mean, mm-hmm. the way they think about food, my father-in-law has an orchard. Uh, they make their own pasta. I have a 30-year-old nephew who is a professional chef, Michelin star trained, incredible, super creative. Like, I live in a, a primarily Italian, Italian-American uh, dining experience that that is... I, there aren't even words for me to describe how incredible the food I am surrounded by is. Mm-hmm. Lucky you. <laughs> well, and so, and I know how, obviously, and this may be a dust statement, but how much you love to cook. Um, I see how much my wife and her family, uh, their experience of life and their experience of family and their experience of culture is so centered around this, this love. And so, um, I, I imagine that you're one of the people in your family that is a centering point for this food, love, shared experience. But I'm curious, what's it like for you when you cook for your friends and family? Oh, that's a really good way of putting it. I never really thought of it that way. And I should mention my 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 husband is Italian-American, so I have fully experienced the Italian uh, cuisine immerse, immersive effect. Um, oh, and, and by the, the way... Mm-hmm. I don't know what you'd do, but I would pay you a thousand bucks to create a Korean Italian fusion evening for us. Oh, I would I would love to do that. Actually, my cookbook has a lot of Korean or sometimes I call Italian recipes um, simply because yes, yes. my late father-in-law. Yeah. I mean, he was such a wonderful cook and he inspired me to make things like, you know, soupli and different kinds of pastas and We've been to Rome so many times. We were actually married in Rome. And I learned so much about kind of how Italians cook, which is very distinct from how Italian Americans, I think, sometimes cook. Um, And so that was a very eye-opening experience. Yeah. The food is so good. Some of the best food I've ever eaten. It pains me to think. Yes. It pains me to think Americans go to Olive Garden and think they had Italian food. I can understand that pain. But going back to your question, let me start by saying that uh, the women in my family are the leaders. We have a very matriarchal family. I don't know if that's unique to my family or if that is something that's endemic of Korean families in general, um, which is in my in my view, it's a little unusual. My father is a rather diminutive man, and I don't mean that in any pejorative sense. Uh, he's adorable. He's endearing. I love him. But my mom absolutely wears the pants in the family. She always has. She's you know always made more money than my father. Um, she really is the disciplinarian. She lays down the law, and it's always been like that. I never in a million years thought that I would ultimately assume the same sort of role, but that's exactly the way I know my family views me now. I am basically 
her heir apparent. She is the second oldest of her siblings. But, you know, as I mentioned, sort of I talk a little bit about this in my book because um, she was the second oldest and my grandparents, her parents continued to try and have a baby because they wanted to have a son. And um, it was miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. And my mom was afraid that her mother would die. So she told her mom, I'm going to be your son. Treat me like your firstborn son. I'll take care of the family business. I'll start earning money for the family. Stop trying to have babies because I need you to stay alive. So she really took on that role. And that's basically why she is kind of viewed as the matriarch of that clan now. And I think I'm sort of the same way. I'm not the oldest of my cousins and I'm certainly not a boy, but all of my cousins sort of view me as the leader of the family. So when it comes to food, I think that they they sort of understand who the Korean vegan is and what that means to me. And I think they love eating my food. I just made this very delicious vegan galette the other day and it was gone in like five seconds. Um, you had but me not at ve- galette. Uh, oh, it was so good. It was so good. It's so easy too. It's delicious. I actually, speaking of what, Julia what Child. What was on the galette? So it's it really simple. It's, you know, just a puff pastry with a little bit of fresh raspberries, blueberries, a little bit of raspberry preserves, lemon and whipped cream. That's it. So good. It you know, like Joanne, I made, made, I made a conscious decision to have a good sized meal before this discussion. Cause I knew you were going to start <laughs> crushing me. I didn't know what a galette was until a couple years ago. Oh, and the so other thing good. about a galette, that's amazing. We can have a, 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 a sweet galette like the one you just described, but they of course make savory galettes savory. as well. Like, these things like are incredible. <laughs> I know. Right. So I was thinking, I was like, cause when you eat a galette, you can be all proper about it and use a fork and knife. But I was like, no, the best way to eat this galette is to eat it like a pizza and just, yeah, grab it with your mouth and just stick it in your face. That's the best way to eat it. it tastes better that way. So I was like, okay, well then why not just actually add some great marinara on this and some wonderful savory herbs, a little bit of vegan cheese melted on top, you know? And then you got like a really decadent kind of fried situation. You know, it's just so good. And, um, but yeah, so my family, they're not vegan. And I think that that poses a challenge to them. That poses a challenge to me, certainly. Um, So, you know, I don't think that they're sold yet on this idea that vegan food can be as delicious as non-vegan food, even though they chow down my food like crazy, particularly my desserts and baked items because they don't know how to, they don't know how to bake. Um, But I still think they're kind of, the jury's out for them on whether or not my food is, you know, as authentic or as delicious as it could be. All right, so let let's go there. I, I I view you, Joanne, as a as a infotainment kind of a person, right? You're teaching <laughs> us stuff, right? People love to hear about new recipes yep. and new combination ideas and and so forth and so on. It's just an endless source of of uh, fascination for people. And so you're teaching us things about food. You're teaching us things about uh, vegan food. To your point. Uh, most people think that vegetarian and vegan food sucks. I was a vegetarian for about six or eight years and threw in the towel. We can talk about that if you want, but (laughs) forget, forget that for now. Imagine you were teaching me and I'm somebody who really 
toast is toast and eggs is about what I got. Cereal is about mm-hmm. what I got. So I am not good at this at all. But imagine I was standing next to you in the kitchen and you were going to do me the favor of teaching me a what you would consider to be an easy to make vegan Korean uh, uh, dinner that even an idiot could make that would be sort of emblematic of the kind of food and the kind of eating you're trying to educate the world about? Yeah. So that's such a great question. So there are a couple of things that I would do. I'd probably teach you how to make kiranmari, which is uh, a Korean omelet, but you can eat that any time of day. It's certainly not reserved for breakfast. Um, usually kiranmari, you can see that as a you know side dish called panchan. How do you spell that, Korean. Joanne, just for those of us who are not that smart? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's different for everyone who spells it, but I spell it uh, G-Y-E-R-R-A-N-M as in mother A-R-I. So kiran mari. Kiran R-R-A-N. Nancy Mary. Yes. Apple. Rigatoni. (laughs) (laughs) Keep it in the I. (laughs) I. I was like, what food starts with I? I'm like, oh, my brain's not working fast (laughs) enough for that right now. Ice cream. How can I forget? Ice cream. That's perfect. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So kidamari is like Korean omelet. And it's the only way that I would ever eat eggs when I was, um, you know, not vegan, my mom would make it for me. And you add scallions, you can add, you know, bell peppers, whatever you want, and you roll it up into this beautiful roll. And you eat that with rice. And it's so good. Um, So so I would include it. It's thin. It's like a crepe almost. And there are liquid egg replacers now that you can use. And what I do is I just, you know, pour it into a pan and it acts just like a couple of beaten eggs. That's what it acts like, the consistency. So you kind of um, cook it like a crepe. It's very, very thin. And then you roll it like you would a cake, uh, a crepe. And then you slice it into little bite-sized pieces so that you can plop it onto your spoonful of rice, stick that whole spoon into your mouth, and you just have this incredible flavor explosion, lovely textures. And so that would be one item that I would make. So Korean cooking, you're supposed to have a bowl of rice and like 17 different things on your table, right? I don't know if you've ever been to a Korean restaurant, but you order your quote entree. Yeah. And then you get like 17 small side dishes that come with that entree. So you can never really just make one thing when you're making a Korean meal. You usually want to have a lot of things on that table. But the other thing that I would make, of course, is tubu or which is tofu. I love tofu, kind of grew up eating it. A lot of non-Asian um, uh, cuisine views tofu kind of purely as a meat alternative. And that's just not the case in Asian cultures. I mean, tofu has its own thing, its own world. And so my braised tofu is one of my more popular recipes. And it's so easy to make. You just make the braising liquid in advance, which, you know, Again, you can find that in my cookbook, but it's like a series of like, I don't know, eight or eight or 10 ingredients. You make that in advance in a jar. You stick that in your fridge. It lasts for like months. And then you use that to braise your tofu, which is so simple. You just stick it in a frying pan. 
a little bit of oil. Um, you know, kind of like, you know, I'm trying to think like any other protein, if you had chicken breast, you'd, you know, get your pan nice and hot with a little bit of olive oil. You drop that chicken breast in, you sear it on both sides, right? Then you take that tofu off and then you throw in your aromatics, like your garlic, your onions, your, um, you know, whatever, you know, I sometimes throw in some bell peppers, whatever kind of flavor profile you're going with. And then once you get that kind of nice and caramelized, then you throw back in your protein, which is tofu. You add a couple tablespoons of that braising liquid and a little bit of water or some vegetable stock. And then you just let that cook and cook and cook. And that tofu just sucks up all that flavor, including the flavor coming from the onion and the garlic that you threw in there. And you get this nice, beautiful glaze at the end of it. And your tofu is just like, again, flavor explosion. That's the kind of food that is not only healthy and nutritious, it's easy to make and it's a complete showstopper. When you bring out a platter of that tofu with that thick glazed sauce and then all these bright colors from the vegetables and you throw that out, who's going to say, oh, I don't want to eat that because it's vegan? Like, are you kidding me? Everyone's going to want to eat that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to eat it. I would eat the whole thing. I could You're eat a whole box of food. You're making me want to eat it right now. <laughs> I know. I'm getting hungry too. My stomach's growling. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's great. Thank you for bringing me into your kitchen. Um, Absolutely. And do you ever get bored of talking about food and of, of working on recipes and of educating and infotaining on TikTok on food? And does it? do you ever go, fuck, could we talk about, I don't know. Anything else today? The weather, a beer, something? <laughs> so here's the way I I do things. Like I'm, maybe this is the lawyer in me, but I can make anything be about anything. <laughs> so <laughs> if I want to talk about politics, I can easily segue. That's a little segue. scary to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah, I can make anything be about anything. So that's the great thing about food. And I've said this to many people. Look, you know, people think the Korean vegan is at, heart a food blog, but it really isn't. It's so much more than a food blog. For me, food was the natural vehicle to start conversations about so many other different things because it's the one thing that we all have in common. We all need to eat. Okay. Everybody needs to eat. I don't care who you are, how old you are, what color you are, what gender you are, we need to eat in order to survive. And again, it was establishing that level uh, or this base level of commonality and then creating a layer of safety on that level that allows people to have conversations that are challenging, that are maybe a little unsafe um, because we need to be vulnerable. And so that was really what food is about. So I can have conversations about running. I can have conversations about politics. I can have conversations about culture. I can have conversations about abuse and trauma all within the framework of food because I feel like that's sort of what unifies us in order to have productive conversations. If you can't meet somewhere, then you really aren't going to have a productive conversation. It's interesting that you say that because as you're talking, I just thought of something I hadn't really thought about, which is, um, of course, many first dates are going out to a meal. Yeah, exactly. And in a business environment, I mean, you're, you're a, an accomplished professional in the legal profession. 
how many business dinners and lunches have you had with clients or colleagues to talk about, in your case, maybe a case or some other business-related issue. And so it is interesting that when we want to talk to each other in a way where maybe we're getting something done, we have some kind of an agenda, but at the same time, the truth is we really want to get to know each other, we start off with a meal. You break bread. That is how fellowship is created. You break bread with each other. There is something inherently vulnerable about eating in front of another person. And that little opening is how conversations can really take on a life of their own. So when I started creating these food videos for TikTok, I mean, I started my TikTok in the middle of the pandemic. And that was so frustrating to me because we literally moved into this house, which is a humongous house with this gorgeous dining room with the idea of entertaining. We really wanted to invite people to try my food. And of course, within a couple months, we were in lockdown and I had to cancel like three of the dinner parties that I had scheduled. And so I was like, well, why not create the dinner party experience through my videos? And if you think about it, a dinner party isn't just eating. You don't just sit there and silently eat your food. Or worse yet, it's not the hostess being like, this is how I made all the food that you're eating. Let's go through it step by step. That is not a dinner party. The dinner party is you enjoying the food with your eyes or with your mouth or you know your five senses. And then also talking about what did I do today? Or you know what? Um, I read this great article in the news or did you hear what happened to so-and-so? That's what the best dinner parties are. You know, I've been to a lot, like you said, through work and stuff like that. And some of the most memorable dinner parties is when I hear from somebody who has a really great story or talks about some real struggle that they went through and how they conquered it. Those are the things that stick in my mind. And that's what I wanted to recreate through some of my videos. It's Well, you've done an incredible job and, and your videos are, you know, when, when you, you've, and I've heard you talk about your photography, right? You had, you, you developed a love and a skill around photography. And so it's very clear that you give a shit about the way the food looks in the video. So it's very, very endearing and enticing. And almost, sometimes it's almost, I know this sounds maybe a little crazy, uh, but it's almost a little hypnotic to watch you do your thing with the food. And then of course you're talking to us you're telling us a story about something uh, often that has very little to do with the food. And then you interstitial into the food and then back into the story. And so you, you've sort of created this. Um, it really is a different experience of a, 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 of that. What happens in the home when we're all together. And in your case, the, the matriarch is making dinner and everybody's talking and, and chatting and sharing stories. You, you've captured that. Um, in social media. Yeah, I think that is exactly what I was going for. And you're right, it is now a very interstitial experience. Uh, my most recent post, for example, I incorporated photos from South Korea from my visit with my dad. And again, it was because, you know, I'm limited with what I have. You know, I, I can't actually bring out the photos while you're sitting at my dinner table and show, look at these photos, see? So it's it's kind of how do I do that in a way that's seamless in my videos? And also, importantly, I only get 60 seconds to do this, which is a huge challenge, right? And what you mentioned about being sort of hypnotic, for me, I have learned that part of, you know, what the Korean vegan is about is sort of 
not allowing the food creation to disrupt the storytelling. And similarly, not allowing the storytelling to disrupt the food creation really needs to be a very balanced experience so that it all seems to work very seamlessly. And people are inspired by all sorts of different things that they're experiencing through that video. It's not just one thing. That was really an aim. I mean, when you talk about my photography, again, I want people to be inspired by how beautiful it looks. I want people to be inspired by, you know, how tasty it looks or even how clever the recipe might be as much as the story, as much as my voice, as much as every other element of that video. Well, it shows there's a dedication to an experience. And and it reminded me of as Instagram was starting to really take off, you know, I have a couple of friends in the restaurant business and love people in the food business. And uh, my dad was in the food business for a long time. Anyway, I'll never forget the first time I heard a restaurant owner said, well, we've redesigned our menu to make it more Instagrammable. (laughs) Well, so now I want to know how you feel, because I read that you think influencers are the scourge of the earth. So what do you think about I think influencers are assholes, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's... Whether or not, I mean, I guess that. And by the way, I don't consider you an. In, I don't consider you an influencer. No, oh, I appreciate the, that. What I'm, I'm glad reacting that I'm not to, an asshole. <laughs> no, far from it. What I'm reacting to is the Kardashianization, the Gary mm. Vization, the look at me, hey man, I'm walking on the beach, and I'm, you know, that sort of. <laughs> I want to be famous for fucking nothing. I. I I think the world should care about breakfast or whatever dumb fuck thing, right? That's that's what I react to. What I think is powerful is what you have done, which is while people might call you an influencer, I, I, I reject that for you on, on your behalf. Oh, well, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I think you're an educator. I think you're an entertainer. And I think uh, rather than pursuing, a I don't know, a Rachel Ray type avenue with traditional media, you did it with the new modern media, which frankly, as a podcaster and self-published author, I think is the right answer. I think the future is direct to creator. So anyway, no, I don't think you're an influencer. Far from it. I appreciate that. And I think you're right. I think you are absolutely right. You know, I'm, I'm doing this event in a couple of weeks that talks about embracing disruption, especially in light of everything we've been through um, collectively in the past year with the global pandemic and sort of the social upheaval of all that's been happening in the United States and elsewhere. And I think embracing disruption means getting uncomfortable a little bit and learning to pivot. You know, when something happens unexpectedly, that's can be cataclysmic to whatever it is that your plan was, learning to adapt to it and figuring out, well, how do I leverage this to the advantage of whatever vision or mission you had set out to uh, execute on? So I think for the Korean vegan, that certainly was what happened through TikTok. I mean, I, I had no idea what TikTok was. I didn't know what I was doing, but it kind of forced me to engage on a video level, which is something that was totally not what the Korean vegan was into. I was a photographer. I was a food photographer and a recipe developer, um, storyteller for sure, but not in a video world. And then TikTok happened and I was like, all right, well, I got to do this now. So let me figure out how to do videos. Yeah. And, and, and that's the part of it that's cool. 
that's the part of it that's that's really cool that I think is amazing, and uh, it's certainly given me a whole uh, second act. And so uh, maybe let's talk about that for you. Um, mm-hmm. You're a lawyer focused in yes. business contracts and 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 uh, bankruptcies and business disputes and the like. Doesn't seem like the kind of person who would have this hugely creative penchant for storytelling and wonderful recipes and now now um, digital digital fame and fortune, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. And so um, hopefully <laughs> you are somebody who is who is very different. And, um, you know, tell me about what's going on there. So I think it's may not appear at first blush to make sense that, uh, you know, a corporate lawyer would also have this sort of side life of creativity. And I never really considered myself to be a very creative person. I always thought, oh, I'm so left-brained. Everything's about give me a spreadsheet and I can analyze the shit out of it, you know? Or, yeah, I'm, I can take apart a statute uh, like, you know, an engineer or a mechanic can take apart, you know, uh, some equipment. That's what I do. But if you think about it, uh, I am an advocate. That is my job. I'm a litigator. I'm not just, you know, any old lawyer. I'm a trial lawyer. My job is to tell stories. It might not be the most glamorous, you know, fun, interesting stories, but whether it's a story about, you know, price fixing and cardboard boxes or a story about, you know, uh, broken shelving that hurts somebody or, you know, whatever that story is, my job is to sell that story to 12 people, nine people, however many people are on a jury and or, you know, whoever's sitting on the bench as the judge. So storytelling is something that I've been doing professionally uh, for 17 years now. So, you know, when people ask me, how are you able to create stories that fit so well within a 60 second timeline? And I'm like, well, I've been working under, you know, word counts and all sorts of things for my whole career. I know how to weave a story that's effective, compelling, and at least professionally persuasive. That's what I need to do. So I think those two things, again, superficially may not seem to work well with each other. But in fact, you know, my legal career has really enhanced my ability to effectively communicate my messaging to the Korean vegan community at large. I think the question that I get asked most is, well, how do you do it both? Like, how is it possible that you could be a full-time partner at a large law firm and also be what appears to be a full-time content creator? And the the truth is, I'm not a full-time content creator. I'm a full-time lawyer right now. I mean, that's my job and that's, you know, what gets all of the attention that is required. And then anything I have left over, then I give that to the Korean vegan or to my health or to my family or to running some of these other priorities that I have. But what you ultimately end up seeing is that there are significant gaps in my content. Um, you know, sometimes I won't be able to post anything for a couple of weeks because I'm lawyering the shit out of something. And that's, you know, not very ideal for somebody who is a content creator because obviously the algorithms, you know how they work. If you kind of go missing in action for even like three or four days, all of a sudden, like everything goes to shit. Um, but that's sort of the sacrifice that I have to make uh, for my job and for my clients. But if I'm to understand you, um, things might be changing in this regard. Yeah, so I, 
one of my closest friends, um, she runs this great account on Instagram called Best of Vegan. And she's been a supporter of mine since my Instagram had 100 followers, you know, and she had what, like 500,000 followers at the time. And um, she has been such a cheerleader of mine. And she's, you know, our personalities are a little bit different. She's very like, you know, manifest this and manifest that into the world. And she's very spiritual and, uh, you know, everything is about following your passion and your dreams. And I'm sort of the opposite. I'm like very risk averse, very practical, 401k-ish, all that stuff, right? Um, but she's been pushing me for years to really just embrace what I have with the Korean vegan. And I've always been sort of resistant to it. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, I have a nice retirement plan and, you know, I, I like getting paid every year and blah, blah, blah. And she said to me, Joanne, I think you're a great lawyer. I think you're very talented, but please don't get offended when I say you're replaceable as a lawyer. They can find somebody to do what you do at your law firm. There's nobody in the world who can replace the Korean vegan. You're literally the only person who can do what you do as the Korean vegan. And that really stuck with me. That resonated with me a lot. That was like two years ago. And ever since she said that to me, I have been thinking a lot about what is my purpose in life? What am I sort of created to do here? Is it to be a lawyer or is it to bring joy to people through the Korean vegan? And then this past year, I've been thinking a lot about, well, what brings me joy? What makes me happy? And the difference between waking up and preparing for a deposition and waking up and creating a YouTube video is so stark. It was something I could no longer ignore. And as a result of that, I think one morning I was like, man, it'd be so cool if I could just spend the whole rest of the day working on this YouTube video. In fact, wouldn't it be cool if every single day I got to wake up and just create beautiful videos and beautiful stories and talk to my Korean vegan community? And I was like, why the hell can't you do that? Like, that's maybe what you should be doing. And so ultimately... Um, after a lot of soul searching, I met with some friends in LA recently. Um, I don't know if you follow Rich Roll, but you know, I, I got a chance to hang out with him. And, Great podcast. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's, he was a former lawyer. He, you know, kind of quit the day his book came out and he was very inspiring and sort of very like, you know, pep talky with me. And kind of after that trip, I think, um, a few days later, I called the head of my practice group and I said, hey, I decided to quit. I'm going to leave the practice of law and I'm going to go full time with the Korean vegan. And ultimately, it was just a discussion of logistics and when I could make that happen. Well, congratulations uh, on following your different, <laughs> you know, we, we exactly. like to say around here, right? It's the people with the courage to be different who make the difference. And one of the things that we get taught, of course, is this is a pathway to success is to fit in. When in point of fact, if we look at the people we respect and admire the most in pretty much any domain, at least one of the major things we respect and admire about them is they broke and took new ground and they had the courage to do something different that was uniquely them. And so uh, here you are at... Uh, well, you're not. My father once said you should. There are only two ages for women under 21 and over 21. So so <laughs> let me just say at, at an over 21 age, you are deciding to take on an entire new life that really only a few years ago wasn't a thing at all. You were very busy being a successful lawyer. 
Well, I would say even a year ago, this was not a possibility. Like even a year ago, I was still thinking, I got to be a partner for the rest of my life. I have mortgage payments. I have da, 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 all these things. But, you know, there's this really great book. I don't know if you've heard of it by David Epstein called Range. And the concept of, I think you would love this book because it's very, again, it's this idea of following your different. And it's this idea that if you look at a human being more as a mosaic of different experiences, as opposed to trying to fit them into an existing mold. The people who embrace the mosaic, they're the ones who are the most successful across all industries because they're the, they're the unique them. There's no other mosaic in the world that is going to look like them. So kind of understanding what your mosaic is composed of and then going back to that idea of just basic economic supply and demand, you know, either create the demand or fit the demand with your unique mosaic. And I think that conversation, you know, in that book really inspired me because, again, it was it was designed to talk to people who were sort of in their middle aged in their 30s and their 40s. Hey, you've got a beautifully developed mosaic at this time. Maybe it's time to look at it with a fresh pair of eyes and ask yourself, there's something different that I can do with this than I've been doing for the first half of my life. Yes. Yes. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and it's funny, you know, as you're thinking, I, I hadn't thought about this. Uh, I retired when my first book came out. Oh, really? Okay. So we should start a club. <laughs> Maybe it is a club. Uh, uh, and actually, be. interestingly, interestingly enough, I was, my plan was to drop the book. I left my partnership. God bless you boys. And I was, that was it. I was going to disappear and have a happily ever after life. Um, and then things started to move with the book and, and then all of a sudden in a somewhat similar way, it sounds like to you, um, you know, you wake up one day and you realize, wait a minute, you have this whole other mm -hmm. life. And the, the cool thing about, it sounds like in both of our cases is, um, you can't do what we do unless you've walked in, in, in the footsteps that we've walked. There's no one else who can do the kinds of things that we can do the way we do them, right? Now, they may be valuable some and not to others and whatever, whatever, but you do get to a place in life if you bang away at it hard enough where you realize, hey, wait a minute, I have chiseled myself into a thing that is unique. No one can do this thing that I now do. That's exactly right. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. And, you know, again, one of the ideas of that book that I love so much is that the more things you try along the way and the more permission you give yourself to fail at all of the things you try, the more beautiful and unique that chiseled product ends up being. Just because you actually fail in the traditional sense of the word at whatever it is you try, whether it's baseball or being a violinist or being a lawyer, you may not succeed in the way that it's defined by them, but that doesn't mean that your experience in both trying and failing can't somehow inform the final product that ultimately ends up being so incredibly valuable in a different way. And so, Joanne, if I was a person who um, maybe I was starting to figure out what my different is, what my combination of vegan, ve uh, <laughs> uh, vegan, <laughs> it's a, the, the list is so crazy, vegan, <laughs> Korean with like life 
storytelling and, and some biography and I don't know, all these other things that, that are the melange that create the category of one that you are. If I was somebody, you know, listening to you, consuming your content, and if I was inspired by you and I was feeling, you know, I was in my lawyer job or whatever the equivalent of that was for me, and maybe I was good at it, but I got to a place where I thought, is this really my calling? What advice do you have for people who, who want to branch out, who want to have that range and, and want to do something meaningfully different with their lives? Mm, that's a really good question. I think that there are a couple of things that I did that sort of worked for me. And I'm not suggesting that mine is the most efficient way, but again, sometimes the efficient way isn't the best way, right? Sometimes you need to do it the inefficient way in order to, again, create that unique uh, mosaic of who you are. So I, like many other people, was like, oh, I, I should start a food blog. Actually, it was my husband's idea because he was really, you know, trying to encourage me to stay vegan. It was sort of a probationary period. And he was like, you should start uh, the Korean vegan. That's your name. You should start a YouTube channel called the Korean vegan. And that way, then I was stuck, right? I had to stay vegan, right? It was he, so, st he slapped the label on you. And so that was did. that. <laughs> Yeah, that was that. And so, um, you know, I basically just kind of went out there and watched a bunch of other YouTube channels and tried to find the ones that I found to be most valuable and just copy them, right? Like that's what I did. And I think pretty early on, I would say within less than a year, I was constantly thinking of, well, how can I add value? Like, what am I doing that I can say to someone, well, here's why I'm different. Here's why my content is going to stand out from all the millions of other vegan food bloggers out there. And I think one of them is just kind of immediate. There was like really no other Korean vegan blog, right? Um, so that was sort of obvious, but I wanted it to be more memorable than that. And so that's when I started sharing my stories. Um, you know, there was also, and I've talked about this repeatedly, there was clearly a political motivation behind that. I was so unhappy with sort of what happened in the 2016 election. I started sharing my stories as sort of my kind of quiet resistance to what I saw was happening in our country. But, you know, that was sort of what I was always trying to think of is finding people that I thought were doing it right. were doing it in a way that appealed to me and then taking that and then adding the Korean vegan tweak to it. You know, what can I do to make it a little bit different so that people are like, oh, wait, so I like what I'm seeing, but wow, you get this sort of bonus feature to the Korean vegans content. So when you're kind of going out there, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, content creation, uh, new product or, you know, new business venture or new service, I think that it is very helpful to find a model that you think is successful, that has a proven track record of success. That's always helpful. But I think what has to happen is that you need to start innovating. How can I add value to what is an existing model so that, again, it either creates demand or meets an existing demand that hasn't yet been satisfied? I always have, like, I always think like that. And I think most people should think like that. The other thing is it's fine to do it within the safety of hobby. 
it doesn't have to be a full-blown business as soon as you decide to venture out and do something that maybe isn't a nine to five. I certainly didn't. Mine was just like, hey, like I have a hundred followers on Instagram. Let's see where I can take this. You know, it was sort of a fun hobby thing. And it wasn't until the past year why, where I truly started thinking about, can this be a business? Can this be its own source of revenue? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I mean, for me, my first book came out five years ago and I started podcasting about four and a half years ago. And it was all just volleyball after school for me uh, as mm-hmm. a way to have fun and hopefully make some kind of a difference. And uh, and it was it was always a dumb way to monetize me. There, if I want to monetize myself, you know, I have I have a career in Silicon Valley and I've worked with over, mm-hmm. over 50 venture-backed startups. And so if I want to make money, uh, writing and podcasting is a really dumb way. Uh, investment of my time because I got, you know, 30 years of doing this other thing with tech startups. But the interesting thing about that, it sounds like it's happened to you, but I want to bounce this off you is, uh, and it's been, I think, more s- slow for me, but um, you wake up one day and you go, uh, hmm, this fucking thing that I was doing for fun and hopefully to make a difference is starting to behave like a business. And at least in my case, I totally did not expect that to show up. So I'm curious what that experience has been like for you. That's exactly what happened. Um, I started viewing the Korean vegan as a business probably about, oh, and four or five months ago. And it's because I never took its kind of monetizing capacity as, seriously. I was like, I don't need money from the Korean vegan. I have a full-time job that provides me money. And if anything, the Korean vegan is like a huge money sucker because, you know, photography equipment and, you know, my time alone, you know, cooking equipment and all that stuff. Like this is like a huge drain on my financial resources. How could it ever be something that generates any revenue? But then when I really started thinking about kind of, like you said, the impact it was having on people and more importantly, how much fun I was having while doing it. I was like, well, why can't this be my life? Why can't this be my career? Why why does it have to be a side hobby? And I think there's this sort of mentality, and I don't know if you feel this way, but you know, for me, I always felt like, no, jobs are supposed to suck. <laughs> jobs are supposed to be about grind and grit, and it's supposed to be that thing that you hate waking up doing every day. It's supposed to cause, you know, cortisol-inducing levels of anxiety. Like, that's what a job is supposed to be. You're supposed to hate it. You're supposed to hate all all of it. And I felt guilty about potentially adopting a career that made me happy, that made me feel, like, motivated and excited every day. Like, I felt like I wasn't entitled to that, that I didn't deserve it because nobody else gets to live that way, so why should I? And, you know, I kind of started asking people, like, do you like your job? do you like what you do? And it didn't matter what they did. Like I just had this conversation with my brother who is an HR executive at one of the largest fortune 100 companies in the, in the world. And I was like, do you like your job? He's like, I love my job. And I was like, wow. So like he likes his job. Why shouldn't I get to like my job? And so then I really started thinking about the Korean vegan as well. Okay. If, can I do this as a business? Can I run my own business? I've never even thought about running my own business and how empowering that might be. And uh, now it's like, 
yeah, you can definitely run this as a business. Having spoken to a lot of people who've done it, um, just kind of dipping my toe in it this past year with, you know, of course, book deals, speaking engagements, cooking demonstrations, all of those things, you know, it's certainly not something that I've leveraged to its full capacity in any means right now because I still have a full-time job and that is my full-time gig. It's the potential for it is so obvious and overwhelming um, that the case was made to me, you know, pretty clearly. Fascinating. Um, now, I also, I, I told a friend of mine that uh, you and I were going to be having this conversation. And unbeknownst to me, she says to me, oh, that's incredible. She knew who you were. Oh, yeah. And she said, um, my daughter and I have been consuming K-pop before it broke. And she mm. said, my daughter has... Uh, I can't remember if it's one or two, but a, a few uh, Korean friends. And then, and then she says to me, Korean culture is the hottest thing in America right now. And I'm like, <laughs> Hmm. I mean, I knew there was a Korean thing happening, but I, the way, the way she put it to me and her daughter's learning Korean and they're like upset. So anyway, I guess I want to ask you like, what's up with Korean culture in the United States of America yeah. right now, Joanne? Well, I think there are uh, three letters to explain that phenomenon and they're uh, B T S that is, in a nutshell, why I think there's this sort of kind of K-pop craze, if you will, right now. And, you know, I, I think it's a double-edged sword. I think it's so wonderful that people are interested in Korean culture. Um, I think it's cute that so many, you know, young people are trying to, you know, figure out how to say 감사합니다 to me in Korean when I post something. I, I've literally seen people typing now in Korean, you know, thank you. And I think that's so incredible and exciting. Um, but I also think there's, you know, again, just trying to be a little cautious about it. I always try to explain the history behind everything that I'm doing, because again, I want people to understand Korea is more than just BTS. Korean culture is more than what you see on, you know, Korean dramas or Korean movies. It's not just K-beauty. It's, there's so much more to our culture. And also, you know, the danger to idealizing any culture is sort of, you know, flattening it and also kind of neglecting some of the real problems, you know, with that culture. Um, you know, for example, somebody asked me today, you know, I, I talked about in my most recent post how it took me decades to finally go to Korea with my father. And they were asking me, why? Why did it take you so long? And I'm like, well, the reason it took me so long is because I was overweight. And I was scared. I was scared that if I'd go to Korea, I'd be ridiculed for my weight and my appearance and that I would be pressured into getting plastic surgery to fix all of the problems with my face. You know, I mean, there is this kind of culture out there where women are, again, their value is in many ways a function of the way that they look. And I knew that emotionally I was not ready to withstand that that probably if I went to Korea, I'd sign up for plastic surgery. And it took me a long time for me to get to a place where I could say, I can walk to Korea, I can walk into that country, I can see all of the ads, I can feel all of the eyes on me, and I can say, you know what? I'm happy with who I am and the way that I look, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fall for this. Um, but there are a lot of problems with that. But everyone's really into K-beauty right now. It's a big thing, it's a huge market, it's like a multi-billion dollar industry right now. And sometimes, again, I worry that when Korea is viewed in that lens, it 
has a tendency to then sort of ignore the underlying problems of of that, you know, craze that's happening. Hmm, fascinating. And so what would you want the average non-Korean person, you know, what would be the few things, handful of things you would want the average non-Korean person to know that's beyond K-beauty and K-pop and K-drama? <laughs> or maybe that's what we should know. I don't know. You tell me. I don't think it's it's like, you know, what you should know. I think it's more just sort of what sort of attitude you should adopt anytime you are looking into any other culture, which is understanding that what you see is only a fraction just by its very nature, right? Like you cannot consume an entire culture by watching a Korean drama. You cannot consume an entire culture by following the Korean vegan, you know, and saying, oh, well, she's she's the proxy of all Korean food. Like there is that sort of, uh, you know, kind of tendency. And that is, I think, a direct byproduct of the kind of world we live in where there is sort of such free access to all this information. It gives you this, false sense that, oh, this is everything. I have access to all the information, you know, all the data. I know the truth. You know, when I see it on the internet, this tenjang jjigae that, you know, the Korean vegan ma is making, this is the tenjang jjigae, you know? And I think there's that, you know, in like kind of instinctive tendency to do that because it makes us feel a little bit better, right? But I think whenever we're consuming any content anywhere, the idea to remain inquisitive, to remain open uh, to the idea that you actually don't know any, you know, everything, you know, just a fraction of what that culture is. I think that sort of mentality is very uh, important as we start kind of venturing into a world where it does seem like we have all the information that we need at our fingertips. Yes. Now, um, we certainly don't have to talk about this, but I thought it would be a wise question to bring. And if you want to punt, we can punt. And if you want to get deep into it, we can get deep into it. You know, there's a lot of discussion right now in our country about Asians and this, this hashtag Asian hate and these horrible things that we see, these attacks that we see. Is there anything you want to say or talk about in, in regards to that? I think that of all of the things that on its face should be so appropriate for the Korean vegan to tackle. That is one area that I feel almost speechless by. And I think it's because it's so personal. It's so much easier for me to be an advocate for somebody else sometimes than it is for myself. Maybe that's endemic to Asian culture, like, right? Like we're so terrible at selling ourselves, but we're great at selling everyone else, right? We're great at giving compliments, terrible at receiving compliments, right? And so when these attacks started, you know, I wouldn't even say happening. I think when they started being, you know, covered um, in a significant way, I felt a lot of pressure to say or do something about it. But I was, you know, the whole one of the big facets of the Korean vegan is integrity and authenticity. And I, you know, I use that word cautiously because I know it's now starting to take on a whole new meaning that isn't exactly good. But, you know, what I mean by that is like, I don't want to put content out there that isn't a direct extrapolation of my heart. 
like, I don't want to like put something out there because I'm being forced to put something out there or because I feel like it's the right thing to do. I, I feel like everything that I say or do needs to be a hundred thousand percent honest and motivated by something in here in my heart. And at the time when I started seeing these attacks, I felt numb. I felt completely numb. I was like, I don't even know what I feel like. I don't know what's happening to me right now. Like, I just feel like there's something simmering, you know, but I don't know what to do. And so for a long time, I just didn't say anything because again, I, I didn't want to risk saying something based upon this hollow notion of what I was supposed to say. It wasn't until the Atlanta shootings. When that happened, I remember just like staying up all night and being like, I can't believe this happened. I can't believe this happened. Like what's happening to our world where, you know, Korean women are being shot and like killed. Like, I, I don't know what's happening. And just being really upset by that, I wake up the next morning and it's still on my mind. And then I saw the freaking press conference with that sheriff who called it a bad day. And I just remember every feeling that I was wondering, where are my feelings? They all just kind of crashed into me at once. And I was so enraged. I was so angry for every bad thing that was happening for somebody like that to come out and be so callous. And I don't care if it was because he just didn't know what he was saying. Like that is absolutely unacceptable. I was so angry. And that's when I really kind of launched into sort of my call to action to the Asian American community, to the API community. What can we do to rally, um, what is our calling card here? And for me, it was so clear to me, I was, we need to protect our parents. We need to protect our elders. They're the ones who are being overwhelmingly targeted by these attacks. We need to protect them. And by protecting them, I don't just mean physically, like with our bodies, but I mean from every attack that they have ever been under their whole lives as being othered and being subjects of racism and, you know, being told that they're never, ever going to be a member of this country. All of those things that they've harbored in their hearts since they came here, we need to start protecting them from that. And guess what? And just going back to following our different, it's exactly what I said. Embrace that difference. You've been told you've been different your whole freaking life. Well, now it's time to take that, empower yourself with your difference because there's literally nobody on the planet who's better equipped to do this than you. Thank you for that, Joanne. Mm -hmm. I also, in, in sort of digging into your work, um, felt something about you I wanted to check out with you. And that is, you seem to be somebody for whom uh, the suffering in the world uh, hit, hits you when you see it, when you, when you read it on the internet, when you see it on TV, that what, the bad things that are happening in the world affect you. That is very astute. I don't think anyone has ever, if they've noticed that about me, I don't think anyone's ever actually articulated that about me. Um, but it is a hundred thousand takes one to know one. Ah, uh, well, I mean, I'm glad that we're sitting across the virtual table then, um, because kindred spirits in that sense are very important because otherwise the world can seem so isolatingly dangerous and you're a hundred percent right. Like sometimes I get very frustrated with myself because I feel everything, you know, like 
that's why the whole thing with the API attacks, I was like, why am I not feeling anything? Like normally I feel everything, you know, and to the point where sometimes I feel very um, paralyzed. Like I can't do anything. I can't do enough. And it can be exhausting. It can be overwhelming. Um, but I see pain on television. I see pain in what I read. I see pain everywhere. And sometimes it scares me. This conversation I think of a lot in connection with climate change, because I feel like of all the things, this existential threat that sort of hangs over us, like, you know, the, the sword of Damocles, like it's ready to fall on us at any moment. And yet there's so much heartbreak in our world. And so, you know, when I saw, for example, everything that happened in the United States last year preceding the groundswell of the BLM movement, you know, with starting with the death of Ahmaud Arbery, and then of course, you know, the murder of George Floyd. When I saw that, all I could think about is we have so many things that need to be fixed in this world. And yet we have a ticking time bomb. Like we don't have a lot of time to actually fix them. Are we ever going to get these things right? And that like hurt me like so much. It was so depressing to me because I feel like so many of us are operating still under this false notion that we have the rest of history to correct this arc. If it's going in the wrong direction, we can change it. And it's like, no, actually, we don't have all the time in the world anymore. We've sort of frittered that away, or we're going to if we don't fix things very, very soon. So what are we going to do to fix this race situation? What are we going to do to make reparations for all the harms we've already done to each other? That is the sort of stuff that sometimes puts me into such a dark place that you won't see anything on the Korean vegan for several days. Cause I just, I don't know how to, to deal with it. I don't know. How do you deal with it? Thank you. Thank you for that, Joanne. Mm -hmm. um, I have a whole bunch of strategies. So I'm somebody for whom, uh, you know, my wife can come up behind me on the couch and I'm have my laptop open and I'm reading something about, a tragedy and the Syrian crisis, the I mean, whatever it is, whatever horrible fucking thing it is, you know, this Asian hate thing, you know, I've had Asian friends since I was a kid. Uh, my business partner in category pirates, Eddie Yoon is Korean via Hawaii. Mm -hmm. So he's got this really cool background Yeah, uh, and he's as kind a man as you could ever possibly imagine. And so I have a lot of Asian people in my life that I love Dearly, and uh, you know, this stuff gets so overwhelming. It what it drives in me is anger, mm -hmm. and so the first place I go to is, oh yeah, fuck you, not on my watch. And what I feel like I want to say is, if one of these assholes tries to do this to an Asian person in my presence, not even God will be able to help them. So I go to that place, um, but of course, you can't stay in that place for a very long time. Yep. I feel good knowing that if somebody tried to do that in my presence, I would stop them and it would be a very bad day for them. I know that to be true, but that obviously is not enough. And so um, I just try to be a person in the world who celebrates diversity, who realizes what the scientists and biologists tell us, which is that the ecosystems on the planet, whether they're plant ecosystems or in the ocean or anywhere else, the ones that are the strongest, the ones that thrive 
are the ones that are the most diverse. That's always mm-hmm. been the case. That's how nature works. And the other thing, uh, you know, and thus the name of the podcast, we all connect on our similarities. So, so you and I have a shared love of food. So I'm not a vegan. Clearly I'm not Korean. That doesn't matter. There's something you're doing that's interesting and creative around this. And so, you know, I want to get interested, right? So we connect often on our similarities. However, we all want to be loved and accepted and valued for what makes us uniquely us. The difference, the different about us. You're Mm -hmm. different from my other Asian and Korean friends, right? And so we want to be loved. We want to connect on the similarities, which is great. But the truth is we want to be loved on what makes us unique and different. And so I try to be a person that celebrates and promotes that. And at the same time, it says, hey, fuck you, not on my watch. Mm -hmm. I think that rage is, like you said, it can be healthy. It can be important when it comes to healing. I mean, I do these sort of anti videos on my TikToks where I kind of dole out life advice while making them eat something that I make as well. And I remember one of the advice videos said, you don't need to forgive the people who've hurt you, fuck them. They don't deserve your forgiveness. You know, you forgive yourself. That is somebody who does require your forgiveness in order to find healing. And I got so many people who are saying, oh, that's not good advice. You need to learn to let go and forgive the people who've hurt you. And I'm like, who are you to tell somebody who's been traumatized or abused that they need to forgive the abuser or their attacker, or in some cases their rapist. And you are in no position to tell them to do that. And if they need to be angry about it in order to get over it, then give them their space to do that. I always find that this instinct of just like, no, like, you know, you got to forgive and you get to, you know, you got to feel at peace with it and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, sometimes that's not helpful. Sometimes you need to get really, really angry about it. You need to allow yourself to be enraged for a bit, you know, and hey, if you find the grace to forgive them, that's great. But you should do it on your own terms and in your own time. You shouldn't be pressured into doing that. And I feel like that is... Again, maybe not the popular way of thinking of things, but that's sort of my natural instinct too. I am grateful that I started to get angry about the whole attack against the API community because I was very nervous about like, what the hell? Why am I not feeling anything? Why do I feel so numb? And it wasn't until I tapped into that rage that I felt purpose. And then I felt focused and I was like, all right, now I know, now I understand what my message needs to be. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I understand that. Mm -hmm. As I often joke, uh, anger is my happy place. It's the emotion. (laughs) (laughs) It's the emotion I most understand. Mm -hmm. And I too say to people who say that I should forgive, I want my response to them is go fuck yourself. Yeah. There are things that are unforgivable. And I have experienced I, those things and I will not I forgive. Right. I will not forgive the four evil who murdered my brother. That's not going to happen. Okay. And, and, and you can call me whatever you want to call me, but fuck you. They took his life in the middle of the night. And so there are things that are unforgivable. And my response is we have to learn to live with the anger, right? For me, anger and pain and grief 
is a person. And sometimes that person has me by the throat. And sometimes that person's in another bedroom, but that person's around. And so I got to make room for it. I got to make peace with it. But there's no forgiveness. And that's bullshit. And I don't forgive anybody who attacks uh, an older Asian couple walking down the street. Fuck you. You're inhuman. Fuck you. In my world, like they do in the great country of Singapore, they cane your ass for that. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you want to do evil shit like that? I don't care what's psychologically wrong with you. I, I have a big problem with, the, with the, uh, the fact that we have a, quote, criminal justice system in our country, not a victim justice system. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think that, look, I'm, I'm all for compassion. Um, and that's sort of the mantra of the Korean vegan, right? I mean, all the way down to veganism, right? That is fundamentally a philosophy of compassion, at least it should be right. But for me, the Korean vegan is you know, obviously about more than just compassion towards animals, it's compassion towards all living beings, but most importantly, towards yourself. It's about finding safety. It's it's about, you know, identifying joy and self-actualization. And I always tell people, look, when you guys come onto the Korean vegan social media, wherever that happens to be, whatever your entryway is, you automatically you have a designation of safety. You are safe here, right? But the minute you start endangering the rest of the community, you are no longer safe here. That's sort of the way that I operate. I want to give compassion to as many people. And I understand that some people lash out, they act in anger, they attack other people because they themselves have been abused or they have been disenfranchised in some way. And I think that, you know, as I grow, I try to be more open to that. But ultimately, I do not really abide by, you know, racism, um, you know, hate against pretty much any community uh, within sort of the Korean vegan world. And again, there is no safety for people like that. Um, There shouldn't be. Now, um, maybe before we wrap, we can go back into Mm -hmm. your kitchen. You can take me into your kitchen. And so um, if, if you were going to be baking tonight and you wanted to help me as, as somebody who doesn't know how to bake anything, maybe bake something simple that I might remember, uh, how to do what, what might you be allowing me to sous chef the baking? If, if, if I can use that term and maybe even learn to bake something with you. Well, I think my focaccia is probably one of my most popular baked items. I love focaccia You're bread. You're crushing and me. I love focaccia. I know. I know. I know. And still, here's the thing is my focaccia is, you know, it's not overcomplicated. I'm not a, you know, bread technician. This is sort of your, you know, I don't really know how to bake, but I'd like to try and do it kind of recipe. So, you know, I'm sure that a nonna would eat this and be like, this is not focaccia, you know, but I've given this to a lot of my friends and many of them have said, this is literally the best focaccia I've ever eaten in my life. So, um, you know, it's so simple. You start out with like two and a half cups of flour um, and, you know, you proof your yeast, you you take your packet of yeast, open it, you know, pour it into a cup of warm water. You add a tablespoon of sugar and that's your food for the yeast to make sure that your yeast has something to live off of while it does its job, right? And, you know, you kind of flavor your dough with what you like. I, I add in some dried 
you know, oregano, dried basil. Um, and you, you do want to use dried stuff because you don't want it to get in the way of your dough and your proofing. And then you throw in a little bit of salt. And of course, the piece de resistance is the olive oil, extra virgin olive oil. This is when you pull out the good stuff. Do not use generic brand olive oil. Of course, this is the kind of olive oil that you would drink out of a shot glass, right? So you throw in a good bit of olive oil. And then for me, I throw in like seven cloves of minced garlic because I love garlic, um, fresh minced garlic. And then you mix that all together. You can do it by hand. You can do it with a pair of chopsticks, which is what I usually do. You could use a, you know, um, a stand mixer if you want uh, with the hook attachment. And you need that for maybe about 10 minutes. It's going to be a craggy dough. It's not going to be beautiful, but that's okay. You let it proof for about an hour until it doubles in size. You punch that dough down, let it proof again for another 45 minutes, at which point it will have doubled in size again. You preheat your oven to 400 degrees, 405, 400 degrees, kind of that's give or take depending on your oven. Uh, and then what you do is you get your like pan or whatever it is that you want to use a baking tray if you want that sort of thinner, like almost pizza-like crust to your focaccia. Or I like to use a cast iron, a deep cast iron, because I like my focaccia to be very fluffy and kind of tall almost. So that's what I do. I throw the dough in there and I add another quarter cup of that beautiful extra virgin olive oil. And then I create those dimples, you know, that you see using my hands, flip it over, create more dimples, sprinkle some really good salt on top of that, throw it in the oven for about, you know, 28 to 32 minutes, you take it out. And by that time, your house smells like heaven. I can't even describe it to you. There's so many times where I've been bringing this to like a dinner party or to a party and like I'm in the elevator and they're like, what is it that you have in your hands? Because <laughs> it smells outrageous. It's so good. It's always a crowd pleaser. You can do so many different things with it, whether it's just, you know, add it, you know, to your bowl of pasta. You can slice it up to make sandwiches out of it. It's just, it's amazing. And it's so easy. You could totally do it. Mm, I love focaccia. The one other technical question I have for you is many a great focaccia is a little bit, almost has like a crunch on the top and is super soft and chewy in the bottom. And so how do we make sure that we get that, uh, that it's the texture of it is as important as the taste and the smell. It's all the senses flying. So how do we get that yummy, crunchy top? Well, I think part of it is the olive oil, right? Because the olive oil is what it's going to do. It's actually going to fry a little bit of that dough in that heat, right? Um, so, and I know exactly what you're talking about. So my focaccia, when it comes out, it has that exact texture. So it's like really kind of, when you bite into it, you hear that crunch, right? But in the inside, you know, it's like, for me, again, I like a fluffier texture, so it's super soft. But if you actually condense it so that it's like on one of these sheet, you know, sheets, baking sheets, then you get a chewier texture. Whichever one you like is fine. But again, your point is that you want it to be crunchy. I think the olive oil that you use is important, the amount. You might have to use a little bit more than you may think think in order to get that kind of fried dough situation. The temperature of the oven is also important. It's not 350 degrees, which is where you bake your cakes and your muffins. It's going to be closer to 400. Um, and, you know, uh, probably some 
bread technician will tell you something about water ratios and blah, blah, blah. I don't know any of that stuff. I just know that my focaccia always turns out perfect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love you, Joanne. All right. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on? I don't think so. This is actually a very fun conversation. It kind of like went everywhere and I loved it. <laughs> well, a lot like your work, maybe. <laughs> I guess so. And like yours, you're everywhere too now. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's probably a whole other conversation for another day. I'll just say this. I might be the only person who does the kind of thing that we do that has zero interest in being famous. As a matter of fact, it's it's not, I don't like any of that part of it, but um, that's probably a whole other conversation. It might be, but it also might be uh, the reason for your impact. I don't know. That's probably too existential for me. <laughs> Joanne, you're a miracle. I want to congratulate you on your first book. I want to congratulate you on uh, chapter two, uh, transitioning from being a lawyer to being the full-time Korean vegan that you are. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. Well, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure and a thrill to talk to you. I had so much fun. Thank you, Joanne. Thank you. Well, all right, there she is, the legendary Korean vegan herself, Joanne Molinaro. And uh, man, oh man, I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And if you did, and if you like what we do around here, the greatest gift you can give us is to share this oddcast with people that you love. And uh, so I'd ask you to do that uh, with this episode. And uh, Joanne's new book is out now. It's legendary, and it's called The Korean Vegan cookbook. All right. We would like to thank my good friends at Atranet, building legendary B2B business websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net. And they have a program there called uh, Fast Relaunch. So if you're looking at a website relaunch in the uh, near or medium term, visit atre.net today. My friends at Spiro.ai are the proactive relationship management platform for helping you close more sales with the power of AI. My friends at bottleneck.online are the leading distant assistants. If you want an assistant who's a real person, enabled by technology, who is nowhere near you and never will get anywhere near you, (laughs) check out bottleneck.online. And I sure hope you enjoyed our most recent episode with Jamie J, the uh, co-founder of bottleneck.online and uh, the author of a brand new book, Uh, that I was uh, lucky enough to write the foreword to, which is called Quit Repeating Yourself. Also, my friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. The number one, LifeFullyLive.org. My friends at Squadcast.fm are the platform for professional podcasters, and it's the platform we use. So if you're a podcaster, if you're thinking about getting into podcasting, check out Squadcast.fm. And by the way, if you're a business and you don't have a podcast, I know this might sound outrageous to some, but I think not having a podcast right now is kind of like not having uh, a website. So start a podcast. And speaking of podcasts, uh, my friends at Podcast Magazine, check them out, podcastmagazine.com. They do an excellent, excellent job of bringing you beyond the microphone and helping you discover many new legendary podcasts. 
Also want to let you know that uh, your husband called and uh, he said it's okay. You can go ahead and subscribe to Category Pirates. And don't forget to check out Malibu Milk, milk spelt with a Y. And while you're there, type in discount code DIFFERENT15 for a 15% discount on your first order of Malibu Milk with a Y. All right, I need to remind you that this Oddcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. If you're into marketing, if you're into category design, if you're into building legendary businesses, why not check out Lockhead on Marketing? All rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that this Oddcast clearly is produced in a studio that does contain nuts. Remember to teach cooking. Support your local vegans and your local Koreans, for that matter. Save water. Shower with a friend. We're in a crisis here in California. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Why is this so hard for people to understand? People in Europe understand this. People in Germany. People in in Italy. People in Portugal. But for some reason, people like to drive their Priuses. And I'll tell you, uh, Tesla drivers aren't that much better. Real slow in the left-hand lane. So please... Get out of the left-hand lane. Thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Uh, We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J. uh, do legendary technical execution around here, and they build Lockhead.com. And our show notes are by GM Simon. Love you, Mom and Dad, and hey, Colin. This oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Dennis Mullenberg, former CEO of Boeing. Sorry, Dennis. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. We're out of here. Please take good care of yourself. Be legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>